Well, I think I've mentioned, uh, I think I've mentioned before that last year, uh, our youngest son, Canaan, who is now 25 years old, uh, some of you knew him in the nursery, I think, those years ago, but he had a chance to go play uh, professional basketball in uh, Malta, on the island of Malta, of all places, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So last fall, uh, Lorraine and I decided to go visit him, and it really is a, a breathtakingly beautiful place, tiny little island right in the middle of the Mediterranean. And after a long trip, which is a whole nother story, Chicago to Istanbul, back to Frankfurt to Malta, we got to our hotel very late at night, so the first thing I had to do the next morning was rent a car, because we needed the car to get around the island. And so the hotel set up um, uh, with the local car rental company, which turned out to be one guy, exactly one guy, who had exactly one car to rent. And he came and picked me up and took me to his rental office, which is just like, like three blocks from the hotel. Uh, and and I, got the, I got the car rented. So um, I was nervous about driving in Malta because they are on the British system. So they drive on the other side of the road. How many of you have ever done that? Been somewhere where you travel on the other side of the road? It's kind of terrifying. You know, the first couple times you do it. I've only had done it once before. So I made sure once I rented the car, I knew exactly, you know, tell me, okay, how do I get back to the hotel? So I knew there were roundabouts and you're on the other side of the road. So he told me, just go to the roundabout, one time around, up the hill, hotel's right there, can't miss it. And then he said, by the way, uh, it's low on gas, so make sure you get gas soon. I thought, okay, <laughs> great. So with no small degree of anxiety, I started up this car, which was a tiny little Peugeot. Imagine Inspector Clouseau. You know, I'm in this, this tiny little car, get it started up, and I'm, I head toward the roundabout. And it's rush hour traffic in the morning. There's cars everywhere. It's a small city. Not a huge city, but a small city. There's cars everywhere. They're all going on the wrong side of the road, or the right side of the road for them. And I go into this roundabout, and I miss the, I miss the entranceway. I hit a bump up over a curb, and I have to stop and back up. So all traffic stops. They're all honking at me. And I get back on the, on, on, on the roundabout, and I, I might have panicked a little bit, and I got off on the first exit out of the roundabout. It looked like it was going up the hill. So I got off, started driving. Okay, I got, got through that, driving up the hill. I'm driving up the hill. I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving. And then I realized I'm on kind of a highway. And this didn't seem right. And I'm driving and for like 15 minutes. And the hotel was only like a quarter mile from the rental place. I'm going like 15 minutes on this highway. And then I see a sign that says Valletta, which was not the name of the town where the hotel was. And I realized I'm in trouble. And that I mentioned it had started to rain. Now it's raining hard. I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. I don't know where I'm going, so I grabbed my phone, my cell phone. And I thought, well, maybe I can at least pull up directions. Then I remembered we didn't get the international plan, so my phone won't connect anything. So I'm driving in a rainstorm on the wrong side of the road, no idea where I'm going, my phone won't connect, and I have no idea where the hotel is or even how to speak, speak the language. Now it turns out a lot of people would have spoken English, but I finally find a way to get off the exit, which is on the other side of the road, get back on, and I realize, I don't know, I, I, I'm going to have to, I, I know the hotel's right on the water, so if I stay close, if I can see the ocean, I, I, I eventually will get close to the hotel, so I'm just driving. I'm, what, what, what feels right, I'm driving, driving, and I eventually find the hotel 40 minutes later, I found it by complete accident. I just was driving, and I saw a sign, oh, it's right there, and I stopped, and my, my wife had no idea where I was for 40 minutes. She knew, you could almost see the rental place. But I got back. So most of us have had the experience of being lost while driving. And I was lost. But it struck me that that little story is a little bit like how many, many people in our culture and around the world 
sort of live their spiritual lives. That is, I was driving, I was going somewhere, but I was lost. I was in a strange place with no idea which way to go, how to get back home, and I think many people live that way. We're beginning a series today called The Way. And the last two weeks, we've looked at what the church is and what the church does. And last week, Pastor Jeff looked at the description in Acts chapter 2 of the earliest church. Let me just read some of these words for you. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And then this line, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there was something uniquely attractive, uniquely different about this earliest Christian community, something about the way they lived. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see that the earliest followers of Jesus were not called Christians at all. They were called followers of the way. In Acts 24, Paul is defending himself before a Roman governor named Felix, and he says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Now, the Greek word translated as way is hodos, and it refers to a road or a path that is traveled, as in you get back to the hotel by going that way, that way. But it's also kind of a course of conduct. For example, if you want to shoot a basketball, I'm sure you're wondering, what's in the bag? What's in the bag? That's a basketball. If you want to shoot a basketball, do it this way. And I spend a lot of my life teaching people how to do that. And so it's directional, go this way, and it's instructional, do it this way. And both definitions apply to followers of Jesus in the way. They were different. They believed uniquely different things about God. They lived in a uniquely different way. And over the next six weeks, we're going to look at what that way looked like and why and how we too can follow in that same way. Now today we're going to study a single verse, a verse that I'm pretty sure all of you will recognize and know, um, but this is where the way begins. And the context of the verse we're going to study is uh, what we call the Last Supper. That is Jesus meeting with the disciples for the last time before his death and resurrection. So they don't yet know what's coming. And Jesus says some troubling things at that Last Supper about uh, betrayal. Someone will betray him. He talks about uh, Peter will deny him. And then he offers uh, his disciples comforting words by talking about what is yet to come. John 14, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? Now, we know that what he's talking about is what we would call heaven, or the new heaven and new earth, eternal life, but the disciples don't know that yet. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to, to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you also know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the, where you are going. How can we know the way. And so I love Thomas uh, for lots of reasons. I love Thomas because he has a way of asking kind of the obvious question, you know, the elephant in the room question. How do we know the way? We don't know where you're going. What are you talking about? And I think this is the most important question perhaps in the entire New Testament. How can we know the way? 
How can we know the way to your Father's house? How can we know the way to God? And this is a question, I think, that in one way or another uh, is asked by every culture, every civilization, by, in every heart and every mind of every human being who's ever walked on the face of the planet. How can we know the way? And to this question, Jesus gives this response, and this is our verse for today. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, like I said, I know you've heard this verse. Many of you probably have memorized this verse. Uh, But as one writer put it that I read this week, there is more truth packed into these few short words than is found in the entire combined libraries of humanity. Now, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but let's dive in. We're going to talk about three things this morning. The way of truth, the way of life, and the way of Jesus. First, the way of truth. I mentioned last week, and many of you knew that I had traveled uh, late in the summer uh, with a Chapel Street ministry partner called the Timothy Initiative. It's a church-planting, disciple-making ministry that works in uh, Africa, Asia, and, and the Middle East mostly. And I traveled to Dubai and Nepal. Um, along the way, I was exposed to, we as our group were, were exposed to four of the five great religions of the world. Christianity, of course, I was worth, with a group of followers of Jesus, so Christianity, of course, but also Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. The only one missing was Judaism. We began in Dubai. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Dubai or seen pictures of Dubai, but Dubai is not only a very strange place, an ultra-modern and incredibly wealthy city dropped in the middle of a desert. And by the way, this is the Burj Khalifa, that that tall building there. It's the tallest building in the world, 163 stories tall, over 2,700 feet, which is more than half a mile tall. It looks like a cartoon building, like it's way too skinny to keep standing up. But Dubai is actually also in the uh, United Arab Emirates, which is very near to the very center of the Islamic world. Now, most of you probably know that the holy book of Islam is called the Quran, which Muslims believe was delivered by the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad uh, in Arabic. Uh, You also may know what are called the five pillars of the Islamic faith, that is, The confession of faith, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Prayer, devout Muslims pray five times a day facing Mecca. The fast of Ramadan, that is they devote one month uh, a year to fasting. Uh, Giving alms, a practicing Muslim is expected to give 2.5% of income to the poor every year. And then pilgrimage to Mecca. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime journey to Mecca called the Hajj. And salvation uh, in the Islamic faith is achieved through absolute obedience to the will of Allah. In Islam, in Islam um, an individual cannot know until death and judgment day whether Allah wills to save or condemn. That's Islam. We also travel to Nepal. Uh, Nepal is northeast of India, you might know, between India and China, and it's 80% Hindu. Uh, this is a 143-foot-tall statue of the Hindu god Shiva. It's outside Kathmandu. It's the fifth tallest uh, Hindu statue in the world. The holy book of Hinduism is called the Bhagavad Gita. And the basic beliefs of Hinduism, which is very complex, uh, includes some 300 million deities, but three main gods. Brahma, the creator of the universe, Vishnu, the preserver of the universe, and Shiva, this one, who is the destroyer of the universe. And the goal of salvation, although it's 
term something differently in Hinduism, is to be liberated from the cycle of karma and reincarnation by devotion to what Hindus call the five principles and the ten disciplines. But Nepal is also 10% Buddhist. And Buddhism is a very complex philosophy, if you've ever studied about it, that teaches that the way to nirvana or salvation is achieved through right thinking. It's a philosophy. Uh, Buddhism teaches four noble truths. You don't have to remember these. I'm just going to tick through them. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, which is desire or craving, the truth of the end of suffering, to cease all desiring, and the truth of the path that frees us from suffering, which is called the Eightfold Path or Practices. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation. And devotion to this path, this Eightfold Path, results in the elimination of all greed, all hatred, all ignorance, and therefore the end of the cycle of reincarnation and the attainment of enlightenment or nirvana. Now, I go through all of that just for one reason. All of these great world religions each followed by millions, if not billions, of people around the world, each of them offers a way. A way. A way to God, a way to live, a way to ultimate peace, but each makes very different claims about that way. Question, which way is true? Which way is true? Back to our verse. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus identifies himself here with three words, way, truth, and life. And then he makes an astonishing and airtight statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying in no uncertain terms, I am the way to God, I am the truth about God, and I am the life of God. Now, I think we would all agree that truth matters, right? Truth matters. It matters in the big questions of life, and it matters in the very small things of life. For example, if after church today I invited you to come to my house for dinner and you asked for directions, I would say, okay, go south on Randall Road uh, to Batavia, turn left on Main Street, turn right on Millview, make another right on Town, make a left on Fagan, a right on Buttermilk, Yellow House right on the corner, can't miss it. And if I said those things to you, you would assume that I'm telling you the truth about the way to my house. What I would not tell you is, well, head south on Randall Road and then just follow your own truth to my house. I wouldn't say that. It wouldn't be very helpful. But, and yet this is the gospel of our culture today in North America. The gospel of our culture today is follow your truth, right? How many times do you hear it? Speak your truth. You do you. In his excellent book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, scholar Carl Truman points out that there are basically two kinds of cultures in world history. Uh, Those that believe truth comes from an external source, meaning a transcendent source, whether it be pagan or religious, it comes from outside, and those that believe truth is relative and is defined by the individual. And we now live in that second kind of culture. We live in a collective culture that sings along with the prophet Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Now here's the thing about truth. All truth 
by definition, is exclusive. Right? To say something is true is to say something else is not true. This is called the law of non-contradiction. That is, two contradictory propositions cannot both be true in the same time at the same way. If I say the Bears are playing the Packers tonight in Green Bay, and then I say the Bears are playing the Packers tonight in Chicago, both those statements cannot be true at the same time in the same way. We all understand that. So to say, as many say today, the default narrative in our culture today is, well, all religions are basically the same thing. They're all equally true so long as you're sincere. To say that is both ludicrous, and we know it to be ludicrous, and disrespectful of all religions, because truth matters. And I think we also need to see that truth is dangerous. Truth is dangerous. More accurately, the claim Jesus makes, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, is a dangerous thing for him to say. Let me try to explain. When Jesus makes this statement about himself, he's saying that all other claims about truth fall short in some way. Even the truth that I might create for myself. And when Jesus says, I am the truth, he's saying other things are not true, and we don't like hearing that other things are not true, especially the truth we create for ourselves, because I want to believe what I want to believe, right? We see this in the Apostle Paul's life before he meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. While I was in Dubai, I uh, participated in a conference for uh, two and a half days uh, that involved some 250 Christian leaders, most, mostly from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. <coughs> I was with a group of about 35 North Americans who joined in that conference. Amazing to see these leaders from all over the world. Uh, and at some point, one of the speakers said, or asked, how many of you, we're in, a, we're in kind of a hotel uh, ballroom, all of us, oh, 250 people, how many of you here this morning have been arrested, imprisoned, or beaten for your faith in Jesus? And hands went up all over the room. Except none of our hands. None of the North Americans' hands went up. I don't think I'll ever forget that scene. The truth of Jesus is dangerous because Jesus did not say he would give us some truths. He would tell us some truths to help us along the way. But he said he is truth. Now what did he mean by that? First he means that he is the truth about God. Interestingly, in the very next verse, after the verse we're studying, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, you'll hear people today say, Well, Jesus didn't actually claim to be God must read the New Testament. He said it many times. Here he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus claimed to be the incarnation of God. In Jesus, God became fully human and dwelt among us. And no other world religion 
makes that particular claim. No other religious figure in history makes that particular claim. And Christianity is absolutely unique among all the world religions because it's anchored in history, in real time, in real places, in flesh and blood, not in dreams, in visions, or philosophies. Our faith is anchored in a person. Jesus claims to be the truth about God. He also claims to be the truth about salvation. Now, all, every world religion uh, recognizes there's a problem. There's a problem in the world. In Buddhism, the problem is suffering. In Hinduism, the problem is karma. In Islam, the problem is lack of obedience uh, to the will of Allah. And salvation, whatever term is used for it, depends in every other world religion on human devotion, human discipline, human rituals, human obedience. In Christianity, which is called the way, the problem is identified as sin that infects every human being and every human culture. And salvation is anchored not in human devotion, but in God's grace. And that's unique. And God's grace is made manifest in Jesus through his death and resurrection, through which he purchased forgiveness redemption, and salvation. And that salvation is not achieved by our devotion. It's not achieved by obedience. It's not achieved by religious rituals. It's received as a gift. And this truth is dangerous because it means apart from Jesus, we are lost. Just driving our way through Malta in the rain on the wrong side of the road with no idea where the hotel is. Secondly, we see in this verse the way of life. The way of life. Um, most of you know that I enjoy sports. And as a young man, I devoted a whole lot of my time and energy to basketball. And when I was about a junior in high school, I went to a basketball camp at a university not far from where I lived, uh, just hoping to improve my skills and become a better player. And at some point in that week, there was a lecture given by a, a fairly well-known coach in that region of the country, a college coach. He was an older gentleman sort of toward the end of his career, maybe in his 60s or so. He seemed old to me at the time. I was like 16 or 17. And he walked out in front of a whole bleachers, bleachers full of these young athletes, and I was sitting in the bleachers. And he had a ball, whistled around his neck, looked like a coach, and he had a, ball, he had a basketball in his hand. He walked out. He looked at us, kind of for this long, uncomfortable moment. And he said, gentlemen, what is this? And, you know, we knew it had to be some sort of trick question, right? So nobody said anything. He stood there, and then he got, kind, of, kind of got irritated. He went, I said, what is this? And then some kid from the back, and it's like this tentative voice goes, hmm, basketball? And he goes, no! And then he rolled the ball on the floor. I'm not going to do it now because I get hurt. He rolled the ball out, and he ran after it, limped after it, and he just leaped on it, skidded across the floor, jumped up and said, this is life! It's life! Without the ball, you can't score points. If the other team has the ball, they can score points. Whether you don't have the ball, you have nothing. It's life. It was scary. <laughs> and even though I was only 16 or 17 at the time, and even though basketball was important to me, something in me went, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I knew that basketball was not life. 
Again, our verse, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word translated life here is the Greek word zoe, from which we get the the child's name Zoe, uh, refers to the animating power of both physical life and spiritual life. Life now and in the future. You might say life with a capital L. So what does Jesus mean when he says he is the life? If you look in John chapter 10, we read, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That word abundantly is a great word. It means fullness of life. Life beyond what can be expected or imagined. Life. To the lonely, sinful, and broken Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Same word, zoe. But this time, life that is eternal. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, there's the problem identified, right? In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's the solution. Jesus did not come to teach us a way to become a better person. Jesus didn't come to um, make us a little slightly better version of ourselves. Our faith is about death and resurrection. Jesus came to give himself. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is talking about new life now that's abundant and full and eternal life then. Of all the world religions, there is only one who claimed to be the creator of all life. John's Gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's only one who sustains all life. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, He, Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He sustains all things, and He is the only one who claims to be the hope of eternal life. There's only one name. And it's not Muhammad, and it's not Buddha, and it's not Shiva. The name is Jesus. That leads to the third thing today, the the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. While we were in Kathmandu, which is the central city of Nepal, we visited a Hindu temple and observed an elaborate ritual uh, that the Hindus practice for those who have died. You see the white there, that's actually a body being prepared for cremation. The bodies of loved ones are wrapped in white, bathed in what is believed to be a holy river, then burned on pyres, and then the ashes dumped in the river in hopes that 
the soul of the loved one will be set free from the cycle of reincarnation. That's the way to life in Hinduism. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are lots of ways in the world around us. The great world religions are, are some of them. But we could also look at our own culture. There is the way of education, for example, to find a better life, get, get yourself educated. And that's a way, that's a good way, but it's not the way. The way of science. Science is good, but it won't get you to the Father. The way of wealth, the way of political ideology. Jesus says, not I will show you a way, not I will give you a philosophy uh, to live by, not I will uh, give you a religious system by which to make yourself a better person, to make you holy, but he says, I am the way. He's saying, I am the truth about God. He is the way to God because he is God. This means that the way to God, the way to salvation, the way to life is not a religious system. It's not five pillars of Islam. It's not the four noble truths. It's not the eightfold path. It's not having your ashes dumped in a holy river. But the way is Jesus. That's the claim of the Bible. And everything we say in the next six weeks of this series uh, to make sense depends on this central truth. Now, we might think to ourselves, and right now some of you are thinking this, well, it just sounds so exclusive. The only way? Mm -hmm, it is. Remember, all truth, by definition, is exclusive. But it's also the most hopeful and inclusive statement in all of human history. And that's what we're going to see. I want to finish by showing you just one more of my photos from my trip, and you're going to get used to these stories over the next couple of weeks. One more photo. While in Kathmandu in Nepal, we visited a number of these little brand-new churches, probably five of them. This one was up in the, the hills uh, surrounding, the, uh, surrounding Kathmandu. Um, about 15 brand-new followers of Jesus gathered to worship together. All had come to faith in the last three months or so. This woman <coughs> excuse me, is a former Hindu who lived her whole life striving to demonstrate devotion to any number of gods and fearing Shiva the destroyer. Remember the big statue. And then someone told her about Jesus. That in Jesus, God had come to her. That in Jesus, God had demonstrated his love for her. That the way to God, the way to peace, the way to hope was not through devotion to endless religious rituals and endless cycles of reincarnation and through the relentless fear that she had not done enough, but rather through Jesus' devotion to her. In Jesus, she found the way of truth, the way of life, and the way of joy. And I couldn't stop looking at her face. I was, we were there for all 45 minutes, and she looked like that the entire time. Her smile, I think, says it all. Toward the end of John's Gospel, he gives the reason for his writing. And this is the same reason we're doing this series right now. He writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Will you bow with me as I close? Lord, how we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the beauty and simplicity and power of the single verse that we looked at today.
Thank you for providing the answer to the question that lurks deep in every heart. How can we know the way? How can we know the way? And if there's someone here today who has been asking that question, maybe who has tried other ways or their own way, and still feels just a bit lost, I ask you to speak to them today by your Spirit that you are the way and the truth, and that in you they will find life and have it to the full. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Receive now the benediction. Go in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God bless you.